For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, surf's up. Season 2, episode 40 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. We say health systems need to start reorienting to ensure that care can be delivered efficiently and effectively to address this progressive condition and reduce its wide-reaching health implications. This isn't just the liver. This is a part of metabolic syndrome. And we say effectively and efficiently. And those are good sales points to payers and hospital administrators. The paper also highlights that as hepatologists, we need that interdisciplinary team. We're good at managing our patients at an individual level. But of course, the future will need additional people coming in and supporting us to provide care to these patients. This is very pragmatic and, and something that, that we all need to be thinking about. And it's nice to see it kind of spelled out in crayon, if you will, step by step. These are the, the hurdles that we need to collectively jump through to manage these patients appropriately and provide the level of care that each of our patients deserve. This is a beautiful system. And if I was reinventing this system. This is exactly what people would want to do, particularly low in socioeconomic, because we have the ability to start to make it more effective and pick up earlier and use simple lifestyle measurements to really make a significant difference. Louise made the comment that this isn't rocket science. It may not be rocket science, but without integrative thinking, nobody converts rocket science into building a rocket. And, and integrative thinking is a genius all its own. global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Jarn Schottenberg, and health systems and hepatology opinion leader Professor Jeffrey Lazarus, as they discuss different care models and what we can learn about NASH diagnosis and treatment this week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. To our listeners, welcome to August. We're through the first half of the summer and headed into the real dog days, doldrum weather. On the other hand, after a few different kinds of episodes in July, things we wouldn't normally do, August returns us to more of the usual kind of content we've been running, drug and diagnostic development, care models, learning about fatty liver diseases and everything they entail. I want to thank Donna Cryer again for allowing me to actually get a vacation, get away with complete confidence the podcast was in good hands. And to everybody uh, also who joined in last week's celebration, Jorn, Stephen, Louise, and guest characters who are not on the phone today. So let's move on to today. So I've been excited about this episode since right after Easel last month. At the tail end of the conference, Nature Review's Gastroenterology and Hepatology published an article titled Defining Comprehensive Care Models in NAFLD, which was really an extraordinarily thoughtful look at several different care models in the UK and based on those models and discussions with offline experts and an absolute all-star group of co-authors. The paper laid out what the authors described as eight recommendations for healthcare providers and policymakers seeking to improve NAFLD care models and patient outcomes. And for those of you who listen, you'll know I never quote anything, but that was just a quote from the paper, which I think is pretty exceptionally well done. If you've not read it yet, you should either turn off this episode and read it first, or listen to this episode, turn it off and read it thereafter. At any rate, we are exceptionally fortunate to have the paper's lead author, Jeff Lazarus of the Barcelona Institute for Global Health and other places with us today, along with Jorn Schottenberg, our good friend who was a co-author on the paper, and then Stephen and Louise and me, Ken Cousy, good friend who's also co-author on the paper and hoped to join us, but at the last minute was was 
not able to make it. Hi, everybody. How are you all doing today? You are in recovery from the barbecue? Yes. Thanks, Roger. As a matter of fact, three days passed, so I'm, I'm, I'm back in clinics all geared up and ready to get started. Also very excited to be here. Thanks for inviting. Pleasure. Stephen, you excited to Bjorn's gotten past his barbecue? <laughs> I am. It just makes me hungry. Okay. It's a good thing. I wish I had my own barbecue. It's a good thing. And uh, Lu- Louise and I are excited because we're going to start talking about uh, the Premier League on a regular basis again next week. Fantastic. <laughs> Look forward to it. And Tottenham's actually getting transfers in, which is exciting. Let me turn to welcome Jeff, who's not been with us before, but who I'm really delighted to have here today. So, Jeff, first of all, welcome. Thanks for having me. And thanks for agreeing to do this paper at what is an interestingly late hour in most of the Central European time zone, but before dinner, frequently in Barcelona. So great to have you here. Do us a favor, take just a couple of minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about your background and the many things that you do right now. And I know there are many of them. And then in the end, if you could, one fact about you that nobody would know if you didn't tell them. All right. Well, my name is Jeff Lazarus. I'm a professor, as you mentioned, at the Barcelona Institute for Global Health, IS Global, here in Barcelona. We're almost 500 people now, so we cover all health issues. It's a bit like a mini WHO. We're also a WHO collaborating center on malaria, but I work in health systems and HIV as well as liver diseases, of course, so viral hepatitis and and NAFLD, NASH. Before joining IS Global, I spent 11 years at the World Health Organization, the European office, which covers 53 member states, and that's based in Copenhagen, Denmark. So I was living in Denmark. I speak Danish and and loved it up there, apart from the weather. It's a big and nice change to be um, here in sunny Barcelona. Well, maybe complaining too much about the heat, but let that be, be the worst. And after WHO, I moved to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria in Geneva, where I spent three years largely focused on on HIV, but also strengthening health systems, working in countries all around the world. There, I transitioned to co-found and lead an organization called Health Systems Global. This was the first time professionals were brought together to really focus just on health systems. And while doing that, I felt that the focus on health systems was leaving behind my interests in specific conditions. So when I left Health Systems Global, I moved to um, IS Global and, and was able to get back to my core work, which has been HIV for, for over 20 years and viral hepatitis since 2006, when I was approached by what was then director of the European Liver Patients Association to hold the first World Hepatitis Day, now a regular occurrence, but back then a rare event that our director at WHO didn't even attend, and, and, and World Hepatitis Day is in just two days on the 28th and um, and is now getting a, a, a lot of the attention and global attention. It should. Joran's not the only one who's had barbecue this week. Yesterday in Barcelona, I had what's called a chuleton in a Basque restaurant, and this is aged meat for months, barely cooked. So no no black for burning, just kind of heated in a wooden stove with some nice Rioja. So although we haven't had dinner here yet, it's 9.30 in the evening, I'm, I'm still not hungry from yesterday. And when we were chatting before this appearance, and this is the first time I've been on, as, as you know, you asked me for something that maybe listeners wouldn't expect to hear from an academic who spends really most of his time behind the computer. Unfortunately, um, sometimes I'm behind the computer and looking at the beach, but I'm um, far too much time. I'm working especially during lockdown. For about 35 years, every July, the second week of July, I go to Pamplona um, for the San Firmino's Festival that was made famous many moons ago by Hemingway, and, and I run with the bulls. And so that, that moment where um, you discard all discretion and and you run, and you run as fast as you can. <laughs> so you can run alongside, you can run behind. I try and get right in there with the bulls and, and end up um, often in, in the ring with the bulls before the bullfighters come and, and usher them out. So it's a quite 
quite exhilarating experience, but I find the whole package of spending time with people, friends in Pamplona, the getting into the culture, dressing up, having meals, and to be really, for me, what it's what it's all about. The actual run, depending how run how fast you run, is only about 30 or 45 seconds because you're running with bulls who are running pretty fast, but it's a whole ritual. So this is the second year in a row. I've missed it, but last year when it was canceled, I went there anyway and stayed in the room next to where Hemingway had stayed in Pamplona and got up early and ran alone. This year I was in the States. I just got back to to Barcelona. I'm originally from the States, but I've spent most of my life in Europe between Denmark and and Spain. And so, yeah, ready to talk fatty liver disease. So other panelists, when I told you that Jeff's uh, fun fact would make our top five, uh, was I misleading you? Not a chance. (laughs) I I think that sums up just a fantastic experience, but also how Donna takes a Vlad sometimes, running with the bulls. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do. with the. I run from Louise. She, you know, she's, uh, <laughs> no, no, that is terrific. That's what, what a wonderful story that is. And I've only had one visit to Barcelona and that was for the European liver meeting a couple years back and right. just, uh, visiting the, what is it, uh, Familia La, the, Sagrada the, Familia, the, um, the famous La, cathedral. Right. Yep. Yeah. What a beautiful place that was. And Spectacular. Just, and even on my phone today, a lot of my screenshots are from there. So That's great. Yeah. And Barcelona does happen to be. Um, that in paella. You know, I enjoyed the paella. You can eat well there. It's true. And, and great wine, all that. And uh, just a great city. So first of all, Jeff, thanks for the introduction. That was in terms of length and tenor, darn close to perfect. And you, as I say, I do think you made our fun fact top five. Now, if it turned out that you could shoot threes like Mazen can, then, then in fact, we'd have the wall burning with the bulls. Then you'd have the whole thing covered. That would be pretty astonishing. At any rate, why don't we just go on to introductions? Let's do the usual. Just one good thing, personal or professional, that's happened in your life in the past week. Brave one, go first. Oh, I'll jump in quickly. My positive of the week was I was allowed out of um, <laughs> isolation, having had my husband test positive for COVID and obviously be a close contact. So I've been isolating for the week. So I'm now out and about and back at work. So um, that's nice. So that was my positive for the week. And Louise's football story for the week, should we have time to tell it, would be how her husband contracted COVID in the first place. It has to do with Wembley and the Euro 2020. The Wembley variant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. The Wembley variant. Next. Well, I'll go next. I guess my highlight of the week is um, I'm back on the floor, on the ward, taking rounds during holiday season. It's close. Uh, everything is tight in the in the hospital. So I'm, I'm back on the ward there. Lots of work, but a lot of excitement and ability to be there for patients that are very sick. So I enjoy that. Of course, it, it dilutes the available time for other things, but I'm glad that I'm able to join here tonight. And really, my outlook is that towards the end of August, I'm going to be going on holidays with the family, swimming to the lake with the girls, hopefully, teach them some swim. And then that's going to be really a fabulous outlook. Excellent. Stephen, you're off mute. Does that mean you're going next? Sure. Why not? Professional, I would say it's a good week. Last week, our Fruxaferman paper was published in Nature Medicine. So that's a good professional highlight. So hopefully more of those to come. Also, spoiler alert, which is, I think, sometime, Steve and I haven't talked about this yet, but sometime in the next couple of weeks, I'd love to go in and do a session, not just about that paper, but about the FGF21s, which is a class I find fascinating for a whole bunch of reasons. It would be fun, fun jumping off point to cover the mode of action. Absolutely. More mischief to follow. Jeff, what you got? Well, as someone who travels a lot less during the pandemic, I, I get excited when good things happen to me at airports and coming back from the US loaded up with books, clothes and junk food. I had far too much uh, hand baggage and was waiting for that $90 Icelandic air fee. And she said, it's all right. So small things can make you happy when they look at you and, and your daughter and 
see all that stuff and just say, just, just keep walking. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> little hum- a little humanity at the airport. I-, I wouldn't have minded paying, but it was pretty intense at the airport with people showing their vaccination, proof of vaccination, negative tests. Someone got denied. People are crying, shouting, confused. And I'm thinking, I hope she doesn't weigh my bag. <laughs> well, yeah, but in the scheme of things, that seems like a, a really small problem, right? If you're going to spend 10 minutes fussing with somebody about that, then, well, congratulations. So as some of you may know, I had a birthday last weekend and I celebrated the birthday by going to Chicago and visiting my daughter and son-in-law and my two-year-old grandson, which is the second time I've seen him in three weeks, but the third time I've seen him in his two-year life because the pandemic made that fundamentally impossible for close to a year and a half. When we were out there for Father's Day, it took him about a day to connect to who my wife and I were in his life, although we do video and we talk and all that, but he just couldn't connect the faces on the screen with the people in the room. This time we met at the Chicago Botanical Garden and we started walking around and he had no idea of who we were. And about 15 minutes in, he just takes a look at me and he goes, Poppy! My wife goes, Nana! And it's just like the light came on in his eyes. You know, kids are magic. And grandkids, when you get there, are particularly magic. And that was just a moment that I'll have with me forever. The weekend was great. Everybody was great. We did wonderful things. We got to spend some other friends, but the moment when Ezra lit up with who we were was a moment that isn't going to leave me any time in the near future. Dwarfing what was actually a pretty good professional week. But at any rate, let's move on. I think the best place to start would be with Jeff and maybe take five, six, seven minutes. And I gave you a list of five items. I'll just let our listeners know what they're listening for. But just kind of A, how did the paper come to be written and whose idea, what the triggering events were, and then methodology, what you learned or what the key lessons were, the eight recommendations themselves and, and, and how they manifest. And then what comes next, both in terms of implementing this and in terms of further research on the topic. And if you can do all that in six minutes, it'll be really compelling. I can definitely do the first part. Thanks, Roger. The last part, I think, will be a good uh, discussion because I'll need uh, I'll need everyone on the line to to weigh in. We, I have my my thoughts, but we'll see where it goes from paper to practice. The story really begins in, in my background in, in, in public health and health systems. So when I was working in HIV at the World Health Organization over 15 years ago and the antiretroviral therapy and the new drugs became available, we realized it was going to be very difficult to me to reach many populations with this new medication? How are we going to reach marginalized populations in Western Europe? How are we going to reach really anyone throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, at least those who weren't engaged in hospital services in countries where you have a doctor, one doctor per 100,000, and that doctor's prescribing, and you're in the middle of a, a raging, in that case, AIDS epidemic. How do, you, how do you create models of care that are going to be fit for purpose, that are going to be effective? So, I started working with, with a professor who's now at, at Louisa at the, the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, Shabba Jafar. He was then at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And we reviewed all of the different models of care that were in place and made recommendations since there were so few effective models of care in place. And just prior to that, he realized that if we were going to reach people you know, living with HIV who needed treatment, medicine needed to leave the hospitals. And so he ran a large million euro trial, the Ginger trial, that showed that if you took the medicine out of the hospital, in this case on motorcycles, into the community. People could take their medicine, they could adhere, and they would start improving. Their CD4 cell counts would go up, their viral load would go down. Seems pretty obvious, but we needed a real-life study to show that that kind of sort of realist trial to show that it would work. We followed that up with the models of care. Years went by, we got new medications in for hepatitis C, the direct-acting antivirals came, all the hepatologists, some of the ID doctors, 
started treating the people who needed to be treated, and we started facing in some some settings diagnostic burnout. Suddenly, you know, where are the people who need to be diagnosed? But for those who are diagnosed, some of them are lost to follow up. Some of them really aren't engaging with the healthcare system. So we wrote a paper on models of care, you know, in in the DAA era. So what kinds of setups did we need? The sort of what, where, who, and how of health systems for viral hepatitis. And then as we've been looking at the situation with NAFLD and NASH, as the new estimates have come that maybe as many as one in four adults in the world have the condition that the vast majority not only are undiagnosed, but don't know anything about fatty liver disease, I suggested to a group of hepatologists, including Yaron, who's the co-senior author with Manuel Romero in Sevilla, that we do another study on models of care. Each study's been quite unique with different partners and approaches, but essentially it starts with a literature review where we define what kinds of models of care would we want to include as as successful, which means they also have to show outcomes. So we found many studies that aren't included, some are mentioned in the discussion, that seemed like an interesting model of care, the way a clinic or hospital is designed for, for fatty liver disease, but um, there were no outcomes, so we don't, or no, or no comparators, we don't really know if it was a strong model of care or not. So when you introduced the paper, you said a review of UK findings or, or published articles, and, and most of the studies were in the UK for reasons I'll explain, but it was a global review that ended up with a handful of studies that were largely from the UK, where one, there are a number of clinics and, and hepatologists doing an amazing job addressing NAFLD NASH, and they're also publishing their results. And so one conclusion we had is that we really do need, in addition to new models of care and replicating models of care and more data, we need people to make sure they're publishing in that field. And that's a bit new, and I'd like to hear Bjorn's thoughts on that later. But for hepatologists to be having to write about health system setups isn't the common ground for hepatologists. The HIV doctors realized that they were going to have to engage with marginalized populations. They were going to have to think if their clinic was fit for purpose, and they were going to actually have to leave their clinic and, and go into the field and go into the community if they really wanted to reach those in need. This is new territory that hepatologists have started facing with hepatitis C, a little bit with hepatitis B, but in fatty liver disease, not at all. So we brought together, as you mentioned, an amazing group of, of experts from around the world, mostly clinicians. There's a nutritionist from Israel. There's a colleague from the Israel International Liver Foundation. And I think everyone else is basically a hepatologist, or endocrinologist. And we talked about what would a good model of care look like? How would we define it? So we, we had discussions where we started brainstorming what that would look like. And then we carried out the literature review that I mentioned with some very stringent inclusion criteria about what studies would, would make the cut and everything else that didn't. And that was interesting would, would make it into the discussion. So in the end, we found very few comprehensive models of care that are really providing patient-centered healthcare. So the idea was that patient is always at the center and the service works essentially around the patient. So let me give you some examples from the recommendations we came up with. When we said, you know, what services should be provided, we came up with four key recommendations. So one, and they might seem very obvious, but they're often not happening. You can essentially use this eight recommendations as a checklist to look at your own service. So anyone listening here can say, well, number one, establish clearly defined care pathways that are tailored to assessing the stage of disease, presence of comorbidities, and the optimal health outcome for the patient. So we don't always have clear care pathways for the patients. It's not always clear to the clinicians or the administrators at the hospital, and it's, it's very rarely clear to the patients themselves. Develop guidance on screening and testing with, with NITs, with non-invasive tests, so we know the challenges of NITs and the importance of NITs, given that right now a biopsy is considered 
considered the gold standard and used for the endpoint in clinical trials, develop guidance on treatment strategies for patients related to their disease stage. And given the current dearth of, of available treatments, this means largely structured lifestyle interventions, which means you really do need multidisciplinary care because, again, addressing nutrition, diet, weight loss, lifestyle issues isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily the realm of hepatologists. And the fourth within what services should be provided is outline actions for preventing disease progression in primary care for patients with early stage disease not requiring specialist hepatology care. So the hepatologists made it really clear that if we sounded the alarm on, on fatty liver disease and everyone stormed the hepatology clinics, I, I said that probably wouldn't be the case. But if they did, there would just be too many people and too many of them that didn't need specialist care yet. So there's a recommendation here for the primary care level for GPs, family doctors to start addressing this. And given it's the liver component of metabolic syndrome, it can fit in with many of the other initiatives they're making, they're carrying out at the primary care level. The second area we had had two recommendations, and that was where should these services services be provided. So we said articulate and define the roles and interactions between primary, secondary, and tertiary care providers. Like I said, this seems pretty obvious, but it's not. So primary care doctors say there's a liver problem, we're going to refer to hepatologists. Hepatologists say it's not that serious, they're going to send back to primary care, and, and the patient's wondering what's going on. So we need to be clear who sees the patient and when. The sixth recommendation is establish where services for NAFLD can be co-located with services for the treatment of common comorbidities. So do you need to go to the hepatology department, or is it possible to have multidisciplinary clinics you might be dealing with? obesity at the same time, diabetes, or, or other comorbidities. So some kind of co-location or close, even through video, joint care or multidisciplinary care teams needs to be considered moving forward. All of this doesn't have to happen at the same time, but this, these are the recommendations we have for, for comprehensive models of care for NAFLD and NASH. The seventh, who should these services be provided by? Define the composition and structure of the multidisciplinary team responsible for managing patients. Sometimes the hepatologist will play little or no no role. Sometimes they'll play the central role. That will depend on the degree of fibrosis. How can these services be integrated and coordination provided? So the last and eighth recommendation is establish effective systems for coordinating and integrating care across a healthcare system. And so that raises issues that we were faced during the COVID-19 pandemic, like electronic medical records, electronic health records, who has access to what, especially if you're essentially locked out of your, your hospital because of the COVID situation. So how do we integrate? How do we share information? Um, right now, there's a large review going on of the European health data laws, and there's lots of questions around confidentiality, who's going to have access, who shares this information ultimately with the patient. So those are eight recommendations around the, the what, where, who, and how of comprehensive models of care for, for fatty liver disease. And as you mentioned, this has just been published. It came out during the International Liver Congress, got a lot of attention there, and will continue to, as we're doing now to, to prevent and discuss, because what needs to happen now is you need to take those eight recommendations, drill down at the clinic level, the hospital level, cities, countries, and make sure that we have patient or I would even say person-centered healthcare. So it's for the patient, but it's also for the healthcare providers to make sure they're clear of what their what their role is and how we can end up the best possible outcomes for the highest number of people. Thanks, Jeff. That was really great and remarkably clear and covered a tremendous amount of ground. So thank you. Excellent. Joran, I guess I turn to you next as a senior co-author and just ask for comments, reflections. Thank you. And I think Jeff covered it brilliantly. I'm trying to think back, Jeff, when we actually first met, but I think I realized that some of the work you've done in the 
infectious disease and, and hepatitis field is where really I was coming across your work uh, in the first place. But then when Jeff reached out and mentioned to me that he was interested in, in combining these type of analytic healthcare systematic approaches to, to think about a disease, I was very thrilled and happy that I that I could contribute because it's it's totally different from the way the clinician thinks of this. You know, you have your individual person, patient, you'd like to provide best care. You wonder where you send them afterwards. Will he be able to adhere? When do I see him back? And, and how, how does this develop at the individual level? So this really takes the entire story to the next level and is thought to guide the scientific community, but also other key players on, on how to establish this at a level where all the patients are concerned. So outside of my classical one-on-one in a clinical situation. And really, I learned a lot from Jeff and the team during this. And we had great discussions with all the peers coming up with what is very straightforward and well-voiced recommendations that will be critical in, in moving forward and implementing best care for our entire patient population. You aren't, we talk about an idea called the blinding flash of the obvious, which is something, a way you never looked at something that once you see it, you could never not look at it that way again. Can you give me an example? It feels like this might have had some of those moments in it for you, given the discipline that Jeff brought to the party. Can, can you give an example of one particular moment in the process where you said, gee, that wasn't how I looked at things, but that's exactly how I need to? In the clinic, you get the referrals for liver disease and they come by all flavors. They come because somebody thinks they, they have a certain disease or it's more because the patient is worried about an elevated liver function test. And I think if you look at the first recommendation, it becomes very obvious that there's no established referral pathway. Some patients just come because they look at their own labs or maybe some other physician thought something is wrong, but they don't know what is wrong. And we really need to provide some guidance for these people and potentially also some recommendations on what I'd like to see as a hepatologist to then decide whether this patient has to be referred or maybe can be managed in different sitting to be able to work in a cost-preserving approach and guide that. At this point in Germany, I'm telling you, I'm seeing irrespectively of the underlying severity or cause, I'm probably seeing most patients just for elevated liver function tests. It's not funneled well, and I don't think we can continue to work this way. We need these clear referrals and guidelines, and we're within Germany currently trying to set up a white paper, partially based on the work Jeff and has invited us to, to join him in here, and refine how patients should be referred, at what point, and who should be involved. Other questions to Jorn, or should we move on to Stephen, who I think gets to go next? First of all, this is very pragmatic and, and something that that we all need to be thinking about. And it's nice to see it kind of spelled out in crayon, if you will. Step by step, this are, these are the, the hurdles that we need to collectively jump through to manage these patients appropriately and provide the level of care that each of our patients deserve. And I say that even meaning patients we don't know about, because we all have our clinical practice of people we see each week. I don't know about you, Yorn, but in my practice, I, I might see 17, 20 people in a day, of which 15 are usually follow-ups, and I might have three to five new patients. And those three to five new patients, or just as you mentioned, it's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get relative to the reason for referral, even if they have fatty liver. It could be an abnormal fiber scan. It could be an abnormal MRI. It could be right upper quadrant pain, and somebody just did an ultrasound that showed fatty liver. It could be elevated liver enzymes, or even an elevated isolated alkaline phosphatase with normal liver enzymes. And we know that historically that could be a cirrhotic, particularly an elderly female. So I love, I love the, the eight-step plan. 
the questions I've got really pertain to what what's the driver of this? Is it is it an individual? Is it is it a health system? Is it a governing board? Is it a political system? Is it AASLD? Is it easel? Is it patient advocacy group? Is it a combination of two or three or all of those? And really, at the end of the day, how much of this is contingent on a drug becoming approved to treat fatty liver? Hey, Stephen, before Jeff answers the question, do me a favor, please. You used the word this, that in my mind, I could have seen just defining any of seven or eight things. What's the this you were talking about exactly? You said, how much of this is dot, dot, dot. Model of care. Okay, because it could have been that or it could have been the impetus to do the work or a couple of other things. So that's well, great. I think the work is amazing. There is no doubt that what has been put forth is something that, as you mentioned, it's clear and, and why didn't we think of this before kind of mentality. But the hard part comes next. That's putting it all together and implementing this. And is the nidus for that going to be driven because we have an approved therapy. Like, I don't know how many times my GI colleagues tell me, why do I want to work that up? I don't have anything to give them except lose weight and exercise. My primary care colleagues get frustrated because they refer to my GI colleagues, a case such as one that we just mentioned, and my GI colleagues will say, lose weight and exercise, go back and see your primary care provider. Uh Oh, but wait, you need a colonoscopy because you're over 45 and don't you have a little reflux? So let's rule out Barrett's esophagus with an EGD. Thank you for that referral. The primary care says, oh, wait, I didn't refer you for that. I referred you for help with managing my fatty liver patient. And so that's a negative feedback loop, right? The primary care then doesn't want to send the patient forward because they know all they're going to get is diet and exercise counseling. So those are that's the reason for my question. It's a great question. And to respond immediately to, to those primary care colleagues who who make a referral and specialists finds that there's something else that needs to be done, I'd say we're, we're trying to treat people and, and not diseases. So if the doctor finds there's something else to, to address, then I'm glad they were referred. I realize that could be a bit idealistic, but um, and I can understand the frustration, but it also means that they can, you know, in these models of care where we've said it's multidisciplinary, you might have a nutritionist linked. You may be using a, a digital health tool to to help with those exercise and, and diet issues that may start being driven by hepatologists. That might be a pipe dream. It maybe needs to be pushed more with um, the primary care physicians, but we're moving into an era where people are going to know more about um, about their body. I mean, look at the new, some of the new telephones that are, I mean, it's not just counting your steps anymore. They're, they're counting and checking everything. And, and liver is probably the last thing that's being checked. We're working to get that higher onto the agenda. So, you know, to go back to your original question, the health system is is, is ineffective. It's not working well. You're, you're sending people to specialists. Specialists are sending them back. We're losing people to follow up. There's, there's a lack of care. It's just diet and exercise. If we could get people to improve their diet or exercise, it wouldn't just be fatty liver we'd be addressing. It's a lot of conditions we'd be addressing. So I see this as sort of our way in from the liver field to helping to make care and outcomes improve for patients. We have an ancillary study I'll just mention really briefly, if I may, Roger, and it's, um, it's related to um, the sustainable development goals. So that set of 17 goals to basically 
make the world a better place, which includes health, but includes many other things. And when we analyzed all of these goals and their targets to see what was relevant for NAFLD, someone in the group said, why would having safe green spaces to exercise near your home be one of the indicators for addressing for how well society is set up for NAFLD? And we said, well, if you can't exercise because it's dangerous near where you live and you're not wealthy enough to have a gym in the basement or an exercise bike at home, you're going to have these these diet and exercise things. So I see I see NAFLD as an opportunity to reach the sustainable development goals, to make the world a better place when you have, apart from certain individuals, but I mean, essentially when you have a fatty liver, something's not working in society. You're choosing not to eat healthily or you're having challenges eating healthy food. You're choosing not to exercise or you're having challenges exercising. And there's a lot that needs to come together to change that situation. And I think and hope, and certainly among the co-authors, I think I can speak for them. They recognize that hepatologists will have some role to play, and it could be referring back to the primary care doctor. It could be attaching a nutritionist or having their nurse trained up in in how to address these issues. And as we move more digitally, it'll become easier for you to, to monitor this. So imagine someone gets referred to you and you're able to do something really simple, like just see how many steps they've been walking on average over the last three months. And you find out that it's 550, which means that they're really not moving very much every day and they come in and they're overweight and they have you know fatty liver disease well you have a starting point and then there's other wearables of course that are much more advanced and conversely you can start to reverse and you can start to send messages of encouragement all of this can be automated so I'm not expecting hepatologists to sit around and say make sure you, you eat healthy and, and exercise more on a daily basis but as we start to automate move into digital health interventions the liver specialists are going to have a role and then of course you'll, you'll have some patients that come to you that absolutely need your care. Yeah, you know, incidentally, you were mentioning the phone. I've always dreamed about how I could take my phone and, you know, like with a QR code, you know, you kind of take a picture of the QR code and a menu pops up at a restaurant. We've learned how to do that through the pandemic. Wouldn't it be great as in the morning when you first wake up, if you just take your phone and push it against your right upper quadrant and it gives you your fat quantification for the day? You, you have immediate feedback on whether or not your intermittent fasting the day before was effective. I mean, that's how quickly fat fluxes, right? It's something that theoretically Theoretically, we could measure once a week or something like that and actually give positive reinforcement. We're probably not too far away from that. Maybe not. The new phones, not that I'm going to have enough money to buy one, but apparently the new the new Apple can just point at your food and it will tell you at least how much fat is in the food. So, um, And then it can start to tell you that's like the seventh time you've had a steak this week. <laughs> and it's okay to have steak, but you might want to tone it down. So, so it'd be nice if we could move to what you're describing, Stephen, but the new phones are really doing some, some amazing stuff as well as watches and rings and so on. To that point, I think we could use that technology to our advantage and help putting together this eight-step process. There, there's got to be a way that we could get the patients involved with this as well. They all have a phone. I, I agree. My comment to this uh, conversation is that the fact that Stephen is thinking about this is it shows how much the hepatologist is left alone with all the guidance and treatment management of all these patients. And I think the paper also highlights that we need that interdisciplinary team. We need support as hepatologists. We're good at managing our patients at an individual level. But of course, the future will need additional people coming in and supporting us to provide care to these patients. So Louise, come join, because I, I think your perspective is a little different. I actually have a hunch as to what some of it might be, because we've been listening to each other long enough. But uh, go, come join. What are you thinking? I thought it was an, a fabulously well-written piece. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It simplifies and defines a comprehensive model of care that, as people have said, it's not rocket science. It just needed to be said in a way where people look at it and say, actually, yeah, that's the next step. The problem 
and a lot of the models that Jeff and the teams used were from the UK. One of the problems here we have is that we may have a lot of ability to be potentially able to make this work. And I noticed from, and I, I enjoy reading Jeff's work, it really makes normal sense in a, a scientific world. And it uh, you know I talk about the sustainable goals and how they affect low and middle income countries worse. And establishing a model of care that is actually fairly simple and cost efficient as it goes through is actually very easy to do. And we've seen from those eight steps, it can be done. What we deal with currently is a system that's not set up to do that. It's fairly obstructive at every single stage, aka our units. Uh, when I worked at Imperial, we didn't have a dietitian in because nobody wanted to afford it. But we all know the evidence says that if a patient goes to transplant in a very good nutritional state, they recover better, quicker, and the costs are left. But you try and tell a manager that who's balancing a budget. So this is a beautiful system. And if I was reinventing the system, this is exactly what people would want to do. But all of those stakeholders can actually be very obstructive at different levels because they're protecting their piece of pie. I can name several hospitals who have fibre scan machines who will not share their fibrous scan machines out of one department with another department, aka an area of hepatology that will not lend it to HIV to monitor fatty liver disease. So that's within a hospital. So getting these models across those barriers is a really significant issue. And the excellent areas that the team chose are some of the best areas in the UK, Nottingham, Birmingham, places like that where they've gone beyond those models. They've come from internal. We used a nurse-led model at Imperial. But for our viral hepatitis, everybody handed the patient to the nurses. They handed them back at the end of treatment and post-SVR. We did. We moved into Fibroscan. We did most of the Fibroscanning. We did the brief intervention because, because it came from within. We had great support from all the physicians. And where you see those models that are brought to the fore here, they have great teams. They have great multidisciplinary connections and they have those avenues that I would love to see throughout every country, particularly low and socioeconomic, because we have the ability to start to make it more effective and pick up earlier and use simple lifestyle measurements to really make a significant difference, which is probably better balanced in there. So that's why I enjoy reading the work. And I particularly enjoyed this article because it does highlight all seven areas use nurse specialists as one of the primary mechanisms of delivering the care that was used, even though they had different nuances bring that centralised person in, it can be done. But non-communicable disease coordination has to be the way of the future. We've got to define non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and NAFLD as an NCD yet. It's just part of the common ones that are causing us the biggest concern. So getting it recognised independently would be a significant piece. But I, I love this piece. It really is what we want to see on the tin. Jeff, in, in one sense, Louise and Stephen each raise a similar question, which is what are the strongest leverage points forward likely to be? Do you have, a, particularly in places that haven't got models like this set up? T taking the long view, and Jaren can chime in since he just recently led a, a large study on cost effectiveness. What you're describing, Louise, we say exactly in our conclusions. I know I'm not supposed to read, but I'll read really quickly. We say health systems need to start reorienting to ensure that care can be delivered efficiently and effectively to address this progressive condition and reduce its wide-reaching health implications. These are wide-reaching health implications. This isn't just the, the liver. I mean, it's 
performance is a part of metabolic syndrome. And we say effectively and efficiently. And those are good sales points to payers and hospital administrators. We had a similar situation to what you're describing with the fiber scan. There have been European projects where people even moved portable fiber scans earlier between countries to demonstrate that a portable fiber scan could be used in the community or for a particular population that may not go to the hospital. We've had similar situations with gene experts. The excess capacity in sub-Saharan Africa, where you have a dearth of labs and you have these you know, multi-platform gene testing devices in the gene expert, if they were bought for the TB program, you weren't able to use it for HIV and definitely not for, for hepatitis. And so you know, these are, are perversions <laughs> in the system that need to be called out and, and addressed and, and, and overcome one by one. So like Roger said earlier, this is the blinding light of the obvious. So now we have this and you need to take this and, and, and hold it up. It's a mirror to administrators and say, your hospital is, is inefficient because you have patients bouncing back and forth. And like you said, with the transplant patients, if you had a dietitian and they had a better nutritional state for the transplant or a better nutritional state that would help them with their diabetes, with their cardiovascular disease, with their fatty liver disease, and so on, it's going to save you money in the long run. It's going to save money for insurers and private healthcare systems, and it's going to save money for, for the payers in our, in our public health systems, like across much of Europe. And so we've started engaging. People are starting to see it. And Stephen, you asked earlier about the drug and the treatment. That's also going to be a challenge where I think some systems will say, if a medication comes that needs to be prescribed, and if it's expensive, and if it needs to be taken for a long time, we'd really like to have some more dietitians and nutritionists involved, since it's proven that that can help. So, um, so in some ways, that pipeline can be really useful to drive the kind of, of model of care that, that we think needs to be in place. Jeff, you used the phrase perversion. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Louise made the comment that this isn't rocket science, and one of my thoughts was that it may not be rocket science, but with that integrative thinking, nobody converts rocket science into building a rocket. And, and integrative thinking is a genius all its own. And the ability to do this kind of thing clearly is not a skill everybody has or every group can, can, can muster. In that regard, Jeff, I was thinking it might be less a perversion than an inversion, which is you're almost literally kind of flipping inside out. The, to go back to what Jorn said about the hepatologist, flipping inside out the direction from which you approach the problem and the goals that you bring to the party. And in that sense, what used to be necessary becomes problematic, vice versa. An inversion describes the situation pretty well. So taking taking that out, showing what the health system needs to do. People don't always have time to sit down and do that kind of health systems analysis. In school, they called us a, a jack of jack of all trades, master of none. So um, you know, but it requires some some lateral thinking, some some networking to bring the hepatologist together, an endocrinologist, a dietitian, another public health expert, and sit down and say, "There's a huge problem here." How how do we best address it? And to go back to basics, we start, we look in the literature, doesn't turn up much. Like you said, Louise, it turns up some amazing centers across them, the UK, but that's good. Now we have proof of concept and you know there's differences between those centers. We found a number of conference abstracts called emerging practices. We'll need to see more data, but there, there are initiatives going on in, in other parts of the world and across Europe and the US. And then it's the sales pitch. And so you're, and I don't know if you want to comment, but when you, you know, when with your paper in, in Liver International, the uh, which I was a part of, but I don't remember how many billions it's going to cost society and the work that the Polaris Institute has shown us in 2030, the modeling of what's going to happen with fatty liver disease. I mean, people are living longer, so liver is going to be an issue. When they were dying younger, they often died of, of, of other things before the fatty liver came to be um, the cause. Absolutely, Jeff. You're right there. And the, the numbers are big. And as the hepatologist, the cooperation we had started here really provides me with a with a tool set to talk to regulators and talk to, to the hospitals and show them there are 
structured ways we can move this forward for the best interest of our organization, of our healthcare system, of our patient, whereas in hepatologists, that's what was I meant in the beginning. I normally just see this one patient. I know about the big size of the problem, but I didn't have the tools to address. And I think the paper and the cooperation we had ongoing here really empowered me to, to look at the bigger picture and bring this forward. So I feel more at the level to talk to these stakeholders and, and highlight what needs to be done. Jeff, that highlights another paper you had in Liver International on Twitter and the social media and all the interactions relative to patients and bringing to light vast amount of unknown information about fatty liver. We see that all the time. I mean, patients are told one thing. Oftentimes what Yorn and I get, I assume Yorn, you get the same thing I do, which is you're telling me, doc, that I have advanced liver disease. My doc told me for years there was nothing to worry about here. You know, the, just uh, lose weight and exercise, get in better shape and I'll be fine. And now you're telling me I have cirrhosis. What happened? And that in a microcosm speaks to this whole model of care pathway. I was reviewing another paper over the weekend, again, highlighting that the number one way patients present to the doctor with NASH is in a decompensated state in the ER. I don't know if that's in Germany and Barcelona how in, in the UK, but in the US, that's where I get the majority of my referrals. Now, sometimes it's alcohol, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just NASH that, that went went undiagnosed until the patient presented with jaundice or bleeds or uh, looking like the Michelin man. Well, thanks for bringing that up. When we carried out this this sort of novel study looking at stigma and NAFLD on the microblogging site on, on Twitter, and you know, the hypothesis was like, there'll be a lot of stigma. There's alcoholic is in the name, even if it's non-alcoholic. Fat is in the name, even if it's fatty liver. So we expect to see a lot on Twitter. And what we found was actually this there's such low awareness of NAFLD that it's not even really on Twitter, except when a bunch of us on this, probably listening to this podcast and, and on this call and patient groups and others are tweeting about it. So in fact, the amount of stigma was low, but that, I think that that's basically because the NFLD was so hardly addressed. When it was addressed, like you said, it was really, at, you know, people asking about information or providing professional information or tweeting their articles and so on. But what we did then was pivot and look at obesity and to no surprise, the, the sentiment analysis and the majority of tweets around weight issues are incredibly negative and incredibly stigmatizing. That raises a whole a whole nother issue of, I don't know if we want to get into it now, but you know, the whole the whole naming issue, I tend to just say NAFLD and NASH and think until we may come up with another name, but until then, don't even spell it out. People have lots of conditions they can't pronounce. This is easy to pronounce. There's no reason to spell it out. You have NASH. That's a serious liver condition because the minute they have to tell people that it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or they're at the hospital and they're being read out at the registration that you're here for a consultation because you might have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. They look around and they're overweight and, and the stigma starts. And we know that reduces health-seeking behavior. It's well-documented. People won't go for the initial um, consultation and they won't go back. So Jeff, we're not going to spend a ton of time on that today, but we are going to have an episode on it in the next couple of months. And if you'd like to come back and be part of that conversation, I would love to have you actually anytime you want to come back because I love this perspective. I was thinking about your Twitter paper actually yesterday. We had lunch with a friend of my wife's who we'd not seen in a while who has a fairly responsible position in what I'm going to call the wellness view of life side of healthcare. And she asked me what I was working on. I talked about fatty livers. Oh, I have that problem. And it proceeded that what she has is a hypertrichloridemia, which is a dyslipidemia. But lipids are about fat and lipids process in the liver. And therefore, a fatty liver must be the same thing. It struck me, and I went back to your Twitter paper because, right, that that's a, a similar topic. People aren't clear enough on what the disease is to understand what the stigma should be. And that, when I read the paper, I was wondering how it manifested and in what kinds of people. So that, that was, a, at least to me, a 
helpful moment. I'm glad there's interest in it. We had originally developed it together with the idea was to have it included in the in the Easel Lancet Liver Commission, which is forthcoming. And then things went the way they went, and we decided to, to publish it independently when we had the data available. And there's the hashtag liver Twitter. There's increasing, and I'm really impressed, activity of the hepatologists and liver specialists online, which is incredibly important also to combat the potential stigma that will come, but also to share good information. And we just wanted to get in there and see what was going on when you look at big data, when you look at hundreds of thousands of, of tweets, because um, you know the field needs to understand that stigma is an issue. And we've had a lot of stigma in liver related to alcohol use. Um, now we have it related to, to, to the overweight issue. I have one more question, and then I'll give everyone else one more round, and then we can wrap up. I, I want to take Stephen's comment about drugs, and I want to take it from a slightly different, pers- a very, um, I think, very American perspective, which is is at least in the states where we, I think, celebrate or claim to celebrate capitalism more than other people do, other markets do, even though what we might have a just different form of who benefits from socialism in the state. Most of the education that gets done gets done by drug companies and through the spend that a company's launch, which is great, less regulated in the states and greater because pricing is less regulated in the states. So there is more power and money invested in a system that works out from the prescription, which is kind of, when I use the word inversion, that's one of the things I was thinking about. How do you see being able to shape that best in this country. I'm hard-pressed to maybe focus just on the U.S., but first I'll agree with what you said, that so much CME, continuing medical education, will come as drugs are through the pipeline. That's Aside from not having a successful molecule, the other sad side is how much continuing medical education started and then kind of started to, to drop off. So we have a period where professional societies, ESO, ASLD, ALEA, APOSL, and the national organizations need to help sustain the training. We need to take this paper and others and make the argument to health systems that that makes sense for them to to um, improve. And then I'm hoping that I have engaged with some pharmaceutical companies, and it seems like it's possible that they'll take on prevention issues a little bit out of the goodness of their heart to keep all of us engaged the same way we saw this play out with hepatitis C. So, you know, even in, in the UK where you are, Louise, you had an agreement with one of the companies that the price for their DAAs would be X, but they also have to provide needles and syringes. So you started engaging on harm reduction, which was pure prevention activities or some of its treatment along you know, the opioid substitution therapy related to the increase in use of direct-acting antivirals. So I'm hoping that as well, hopefully a molecule or a drug does make it or others are in the pipeline and they start to amp up their education, I think the only way they're going to get payers and certain actors in the health system really engaged is if they also talk about the important prevention side, how it's just better for individuals, better for society, better for the system. We know that they, they want to sell their medicine in the end and they will sell some of that, but we also need to make sure that the hepatologist isn't seeing 20 patients in a day. They're the 20 right patients that need your care when you're not seeing the people who could have been cared for elsewhere. And that's a health systems issue. I mean, there's risk stratification based on NITs and and, and, and sets of questions that can be used. And so I'm hoping that the companies will continue to support that. And in the meantime, the professional organizations need to do that and as well as simply, you know, medical school training. Okay, great. Just before we wrap up real quick, so Stephen, the way I asked that question, was that consistent or at least, well, aligned with what you were thinking about when you talk about what happens when we get drugs or before we get drugs or why we need yeah, to get drugs. that's exactly right. All right, good. Anybody else have, we're at about an hour, which is when we usually start to wrap up. Anybody else have a question or a comment before we go to close? Go ahead, Louise. I just had a, a question really where this sort of system sits. There was the publication by Tracy, Simon and the team and Hannes Hagstrom was part of this piece of work, you guys, where her article basically said that basics and the whole team, that, that simple steatosis kills. And yes, 
the more the fibrosis developed, the higher the rate of death was. But there was a considerable difference over those years of people with just simple steatosis dying fairly young. She's also part of another paper which I looked at today, which absolutely shocked me. Um, and it was to do with children. And it was naffled in paediatric ch- in children with an average age of, I think, 16.9 years when they were biopsied. And these children died in their adulthood so much younger. And basically, this was a 20-year study. And it was mortifying to know that for every 15 children diagnosed with naffled, there was one death. And how, if we then move into the world that simple steatosis is now a potential killer, when we look at frameworks like this, where we say GPs can manage these cases because they're just, we've got steatosis in the liver. Where do we progress to as to when do we manage these patients? How can we manage these patients if new evidence suggests that cancer, cardiac conditions are actually the prime cause of people when they're biopsied at 15.9 years of age dying in their 30s? So it, it was frightening as to where we really go the more we find out about NAFLD and the basic connections and this and getting this sort of framework into comprehensive care needs to come sooner rather than later if that data is to be supported elsewhere, I suppose, particularly lower middle income countries. Thank, thanks for, for raising that. I mean, I think we we almost owe it to to those who have suffered and lost their lives because the system has has failed them. We often talk about um, late presentation of particular diseases in my fields with HIV and biohepatitis. Someone arrives, fibrosis stage three or four, they're late. I think we need to call it late diagnosis. The system failed. Why did we not reach them earlier? They had risk factors or we should have been checking their liver counts or they have a family history. Whatever it is, systems aren't working. And I think some of these not quite personal stories, but really tragic stories, especially when it's young people, are going to be a part of the effort to raise awareness around NAFLD. There's good modeling, there's cost-effectiveness studies, and the hepatologists themselves will tell the stories of, if only this person had come to me earlier, if only I had maybe come to them earlier. Because it's the first thing I've heard really in the time we've been doing this, when you talk about calling it a late diagnosis, where you can start to put up a KPI, a key performance indicator, and a and you can start to evaluate health systems by what percentage of the patients where they capture disease are they already in a late stage. And you can make a metric around that and you can reimburse or, or penalize and do all this other stuff. That, that's really interesting. Yep. We're doing it in biohepatitis. I have a PhD student who's focused on that work. Again, in biohepatitis in, in Germany, like Jürgen Rockstraw and the cohort are doing amazing work in HCV. We, we made a consensus definition we published a few years ago. We did it in HIV as well. And yeah, maybe you're right. We need this metric. Canaphil so Aaron, Steve, and others. What are you doing after this call? We need to talk. <laughs> yeah, have fun. I'll tell you what, we're going to start to bring this call to the end there, Jeff, and I'd love to facilitate that because I, well, yeah, I love that, those kinds of issues. And B, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. First of all, I want to thank all of you, uh, Jeff, for, for presenting this fantastically important and really blindingly obvious, in the best sense, work, and everybody else for some really great questions and thoughts. In wrap-up, let me, let me ask, two years from now, five years from now, how do you think the world, and can be different, will be different because of this vision and this point of view and the ways that it will play forward? Brave One, go first. Well, I think two and certainly five years, we're going to see healthcare radically changed. We've already seen the need for the change under COVID-19. I mean, we couldn't even get into our hospital. We stopped diagnosing for infectious diseases as the infectious disease doctors, and then everyone else was preoccupied with COVID-19. So we're going to need to see stronger models of care, models of care that aren't as hospital clinic-based. We've done some ancillary research on on national preparedness and published rankings of how well countries are doing. We did 20 
29 European countries. Now we have 104 countries in a global study, and, and, and we're showing that countries are simply not prepared at all, at all. No basic preparedness for addressing NAFLD, and, and urine was also part of the large consensus statement that will also come out in the autumn in Nature Review's GastroHep, where 217 people took you know these recommendations, but then created another set of recommendations and statements around how the field needs to change. So I hope with such a large collaboration from, I think, well, 217, I think there were more than 150 different countries involved, that we have a lot of key stakeholders who are going to be working not just to realize their consensus statement, but to realize that, that this is what needs to happen to make the health system more person-centric. It'll help for fatty liver disease, but it will also help for, for many, many other conditions. I'd like to follow on from Jeff in that, and I, I agree. I think we will see healthcare change radically. What I would like to see introduced is most of these countries that we're sitting in now are aligned to the sustainable goals outcomes. We've all done that at a governmental level, but it doesn't reach the ground floor. It doesn't reach where the patient is or where the person is. It would be nice to see money follow that to create non-communicable disease specialists who then can actually target people within their own areas, areas, regions, hospitals who have a communicable disease that's non-communicable that is connected to another disease and actually start that management pathway. They are connected, but at the moment they're too fragmented. So non-communicable diseases have to be their own definition whereby we link diabetes, endocrinologies, cardiologies and all of that together within and hepatology. And we all take the ones that are important to us. Not all hepatologists need to see all fatty liver disease patients. They may be more inclined to endocrinology or cardiology, but they have that central core. It's a non-communicable disease condition that is interrelated and bi-directional. And I think if we've got sustainable goals, we need sustainable goal champions, either in each of these areas and regions, but actually each hospital, they have a, a champion for dementia. They have a champion for different diseases. Do we need sustainable goal champions? If we've signed up as a government and a country to that, we should actually be seen to provide that at a, a more attainable level. I don't think most members of the public know we do sustainable goals or that we're signed up and publicity around that would be good. Thanks, Louise. Next. Following up on where, where we are in, in, in two to five years, I think we, as detailed by the two previous speakers, we, we're already seeing a change. Some changes will take more time and growing together with other experts. Disembarking the siloed healthcare that we discussed previously will take more time, but it's based on those type of recommendations we brought forward here. And again, that were spearheaded by Jeff that put the basis for those discussions. And again, I think I mentioned it, it helped me to find the right words and talk to the people and, and bring this issue forward. So uh, this was really been a fantastic uh, collaboration and I greatly enjoyed being part of it. Yeah, it just you know, reminds me of the phrase, a rising tide lifts all ships. I mean, the more we begin to talk about this in podcasts and in CME events and in industry-sponsored symposia and in our uh, own agencies, ASLD and Easel Apostle and others, that, that groundswell begins to happen. For my patients, one of the phrases I use is heart transformation, not behavioral modification. Because you could tell somebody to modify their behavior, but until they really in their heart want to make that change, it's like it's like the joke I've said on here before, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb has to want to change, right? So that piece of having a conversation with a patient and getting them to do the thing they need to do is an important part of all of this. Again, getting it out there is a first step, 
And now we need to not sit back on our laurels. We need to take this and we need to run with it. We need to incorporate it into our other other avenues of delivering this message, whether it's Yorn talking at Easel or it's Jeff speaking through the lens of who, or it's Louise speaking through her nursing channels, or Roger using the podcast as a mouthpiece, or me in the role I have uh, as a hepatologist here in Texas. We all can do our part and working collaboratively, let's take the next step. But independently, we can also do our own outreach. So this has been very informative. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Yorn, thanks for participating. Thanks for for your leadership in this as well. Um, This is fascinating. I agree. And I agree with everything that's been said. And Louise, I want to thank you for the rocket science comment because it's really taken me in a whole different direction, which is first, you need rocket science, right? Then there's a level of integrative thinking necessary to build the rocket ship. And then there's a necessary level of quality control and metrication necessary to that you're actually building it the way you want to. If this effort, Jeff, Yorn, et cetera, if it's created the plan for what the rocket ship needs to look like, then the idea of how do you quality control a rocket ship? What do I really want to measure efficiently to see that I'm doing the right things? Going back to Jeff's uh, F3 as a late diagnosis, you start to be able to think about what can I actually fl- shine a light on that will determine where we are and aren't changing things for the better. And then you get you get out of anecdotal life because anecdotal life's a killer on these kinds of things. Everybody has anecdotes going in, in, in different directions. So I guess, Jeff, when I read it, I think that that is the what grabbed me, even though I couldn't articulate it until now, that if you can create targets, then people can start to metricate. And then people figure out how to solve to metrics. And they, you know, my, my, my graduate degree is an MBA where they teach you that people do what's inspected, not what's expected. And inspection is all about the ability to create metrics. So this feels like it's taken a long step down that road. And um, to you and to your and to everyone else who worked on it, really, I think a big deal and a great effort. So thanks for that. just wanted to say thanks again for, for having us. And thank you so much for the interest in the paper and the interesting discussion. And thanks to all of you folks. This has been great. I'm just going to say goodbye to you you all for now and then i will come back and talk about the business highlights when everybody's off so um thanks folks so welcome to today's business section i guess we're about halfway through summer now and as we move along everything seems to move slower with occasional breaks caused by extreme weather. For example, last Thursday night, a Category 3 tornado, the first in our area in 30 years, passed within a half a mile of our house. We never see tornadoes here. It was crazy. And obviously took out power for a while. But with that said, we have a little news. It's official. The nine-day schedule is here. With this week's episode, we are formally moving into our new nine-day schedule. This is the first part of that schedule where we will take nine days to do what we used to do in two days. This episode was recorded on July 26th. The one we recorded two days ago will appear next week. The nine-day schedule itself has three benefits. It allows me to stop living on immediate rush footing from Monday evening through Wednesday night with like no sleep and no time to think. It will give me more time for blogging and other podcast related activities now that I'm not scrambling against that really tight deadline I have every week. And it will allow us to work on podcast franchise improvements and features ranging from having time to implement live audience over the next month to some new content features for the fall. We've got some great episodes ahead. This week, I'm conferring with our favorite surfers about interesting episodes for the couple of months ahead. Before that, though, next week's episode will share a multidisciplinary article on how specialties, really gastrointestinal, endocrinology, primary care, must work together in the face of the coming NASH epidemic. Our friend Ken Cousy, one of the leaders in this effort, will join us, and Stephen Harrison's a co-author as well. The week after that, I suspect we'll do an article on some element of drug development and pharmacology, and we'll have episodes on pediatric NAFL, new NITS news, and a few other things later in the month or early September. Thanks for the kind words and notes about the 20K episode. 
Finally, thanks to all of you who reached out with notes and comments about the Buzzsprout 20K episode. Our social media guru, Eric Rounds, particularly liked the one note saying that his video was as good as the actual podcast. So with that, I want to thank Jeff Lazarus for coming at a funny hour for someone living in Barcelona and doing such a smashing job. To Jorn Schottenberg for sharing his perspective on being part of the process. And to Stephen and Louise for everything they usually do so well and did so great tonight. Also, thanks to Mike for our sound, Eric for our social media, and Polly for helping my sanity survive these recent weeks of too many fire drills. We'll post the next episode on August 11th. I've already recorded it. You won't want to miss it. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.